Hello and welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Amy Hawthorne, the Deputy Director of Research at POMED, the Project on Middle East Democracy in Washington, D.C. Amy is a Middle East expert with many years of experience working on Arab politics and U.S. Middle East policy in the NGO sector, in think tanks, and in the State Department during the Obama administration. Our conversation today focuses on Tunisia and how the Biden administration is responding to last summer's soft coup. Amy, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me back, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here again. Now, we are going to talk about how Joe Biden is handling uh, the Tunisia coup, but first of all, let me ask you about um, how you feel he's handling this war in the Ukraine, which is now into its third week. He's doing a very good job, in my opinion. He's balancing a lot of competing challenges uh, very skillfully, I believe. He's done quite a masterful job, in my view, in unifying all the allies, the unity uh, that has come together to you know, condemn and oppose Russia's invasion of Ukraine has been quite remarkable. And from everything that I know, that robust response has really been led by the United States. But Biden has taken himself out of the limelight a bit and has sort of uh, been doing this very mostly from behind the scenes, it seems, in order to I think, try to craft a picture that is, you know, the free world versus Putin rather than the United States versus Putin, which is, I think, how President Putin would like this conflict to uh, to be seen or perhaps how he himself sees it. Uh, Biden has to, uh, you know, unify the allies, mount a, a robust response, but also be very careful not to get the U.S. Uh, directly involved in a direct conflict uh, with Putin. Uh, and he's also done a pretty good job, I think, of getting at least a number of key Republicans on board to show that this is more of a bipartisan response against Putin. So generally speaking, I give Biden uh, quite high marks, actually, so far. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't uh, disagree with that at all, Amy. And I think you made a good point about uh, in a very polarized political situation, he has had some successes bringing uh, some you know, important Republicans on board. But at the same time, he's still getting slagged off by the Republican Party who are blaming him for the uh, energy crisis in the United States. Well, I think we've seen that the Republicans are going to try to blame Biden for everything, <laughs> whether or not he has control over it. Uh, so I don't take that critique very seriously. Uh, I think that's a very partisan critique. And my response to that would be to say, uh, what exactly would you be doing differently? That's not to say, however, that rising energy prices, rising prices at the pump aren't going to, you know, potentially hurt Biden politically. So it seems to me that he's, uh, he's taking a political risk for what he sees is the bigger overarching challenge, which is pushing back against against Russia. So um, I'm sorry to say, but I, I just don't take the Republican critiques uh, that seriously. Also on, on at least the oil prices, also because 
the U.S. president does not uh, control the price of oil. In our economy, that's not how it works. Okay, well, thank you for that, uh, Amy. Now, let us look at Tunisia. Uh, on the 21st of December last year, President Biden presided over a democracy summit, as it was called, and he spoke about proving that democracy still works. A cynic might say, where was the president in the days and months after Kai Saeed staged his soft coup back in July of last year? Where was a robust response then? Well, it's true that throughout this entire uh, situation, post-July 25th, post-Kaisaid coup in Tunisia, we haven't seen President Biden himself make any public statements about the political crisis in Tunisia. However, right after Kaisaid's uh, power grab uh, coup, we did see pretty strong immediate response from Secretary of State Blinken, and we also saw Secretary of State Blinken, uh, you know, reaching out to speak to Kaisayed uh, immediately and to express, you know, U.S. concern about what was taking place. After that initial, I would say, moderate response from the Biden administration, at, at least having the Secretary of State uh, publicly and privately engaged. After that, I think we saw a real drop off in uh, visible engagement to really push back against what was happening in Tunisia. So for, for a long time, actually, we didn't see any public statements by any official in the Biden administration expressing concern about a succession of very disturbing things that Kai Syed was doing in Tunisia, succession of moves essentially to dismantle Tunisian democracy. Uh, so recently, in recent weeks, we've seen the U.S. becoming, it seems, uh, expressing a bit more public concern. But the response overall has been fairly muted and certainly does not give the impression of a U.S. administration that is, you know, very, very, very engaged in sort of helping to steer Tunisia back onto a democratic path. Uh, and I think they're a number of reasons why the Biden administration's response has been somewhat muted. I'm happy to sort of tick through them if you'd like. Well, yes, please do. So one of the factors I think that has played into the somewhat muted or actually quite muted response to Kaisaid's uh, attack on Tunisian democracy has been that uh, the Biden administration, in the case of Tunisia, as uh, with other some other foreign policy issues, has put a premium, it seems, on having as much of a unified public response with key European countries and, and with the other G7 countries in specific, as much of a unified public response uh, as possible. And frankly, I think there are certain European countries, uh, <laughs> namely France, where it's been a bit hard for the U.S. to get them on board, uh, maybe with some of the more direct and robust condemnations of what Kaisai has been doing. And the reason I say that is because there have been some joint statements uh, that have been issued by G7 ambassadors in Tunis. Uh, and so those are, of course, joint statements. All the parties have to sign on. And I'm sure there's been a lot of, uh, of jostling behind the scenes about how 
what to say and how critical to be. And uh, so when you have to bring together, when, when you're putting an emphasis on kind of getting a unified response necessarily, if there are members of that cohort who, uh, like France, who apparently don't want to be as critical as, as Qais Sayed, uh, or don't want to be very critical of, of his moves, then you're going to see kind of a, a diluted response. But I think there's another, maybe more important reason uh, why the Biden administration hasn't um, been more visibly and robustly engaged. And I say visibly and robustly because it is certainly possible that the Biden administration has been engaged in more uh, behind the scenes diplomacy with the Tunisian government. If that is the case, it's it's um, mostly uh, hidden from public view, but uh, it is very possible that they're more engaged behind the scenes than they are in public. But I think a key factor shaping their response has been the uh, conclusion, especially initially, that what the U.S. government's uh, conclusion that what Qaisayed did with his power grab on July 25th was very popular with a lot of Tunisians and that there was strong public support in Tunisia for what he had done. And therefore, for the United States to come out and take a strong stance against him would potentially, I think the concern might might have been, uh, potentially put the United States in a bad, <laughs> unpopular position with the Tunisian public, put, um, you know, give Qais Syed, who already has often a narrative that's um, very nationalistic, at times even uh, some have described it as xenophobic sort of rhetoric, give him more, more fuel for his, for his uh, nationalist rhetorical fire against outside parties interfering in Tunisia's in, internal affairs and such. And so, at least initially, the U.S. seemed to be concerned that although what Qaisaid was doing was uh, seemingly undemocratic, that it had the support of a lot of the Tunisian public. And I guess for me, that explanation never has really been fully convincing because on the one hand, it's true that we did see uh, a lot of Tunisians supporting Qaisaid's moves but I'm not sure that that support was always as sort of lopsided as maybe some portrayed. And we've also seen that over the months, as Qaisayed has continued with his project and um, is not, the economic situation is not improving, so on and so forth. Conditions in Tunisia are still very difficult. The concerns that led at least some Tunisians to support his power grab very enthusiastically in the beginning those conditions have not been ameliorated. They've actually gotten worse. And so we have, there are many signs that his support has diminished uh, over time. And, and then I guess, you know, the third reason, overarching reason, in my view, why the U.S. hasn't done more is because I think that in a country, and this is very regrettable, but in a country like Tunisia, where but it's not perceived that there are significant U.S. national security interests at stake. I think there's often a, typically a reluctance on the part of U.S. officials to take very bold stances that might possibly, it is thought, kind of jeopardize U.S. access with that leadership, uh, U.S. influence and engagement with the incumbent government. Uh, that is often an overriding 
some, albeit unspoken concern, but the idea of not wanting to throw uh, bilateral relations into some sort of real tumult by coming out too strongly against uh, against the leadership. By the way, that is a very typical diplomatic response of all governments, not just the United States, to sort of work to preserve short-term interests, uh, relationships, to keep the you know bilateral ties going, regardless of what the government in question, how they're behaving. This is a very typical approach. But of course, with the United States, it does raise charges of hypocrisy because the United States is the main country around the world that talks so much about putting democracy and human rights at the center of its foreign policy. So there's more of a you know, uh, discrepancy between U.S. rhetoric and actions than there is, say, with perhaps a country like France. Yeah, well, I think that's um, that's certainly true. And you're right to say it's not just America that uh, is guilty of that sort of approach. Uh, and I look at the Arab Spring and America, the U.K., other countries really left uh, the protest movements kind of hanging in the wind. Tunisia was seen as the one example. Um, but but look, uh, hand on heart, Amy, look at Tunisia. Was it really a functioning democracy by the time that Kai Saeed made his move? Many, many people say, you know, that uh, Inada, the, the, the Islamist party, had enabled massive corruption, that the system had really not changed very much, that the business interests were basically still in place, and that the people were, despite all their efforts, being very much robbed of, of the revolution that uh, got Ben Ali out. I would acknowledge that uh, at the time of Paisayed's power grab this summer, the economic situation in Tunisia was, was deteriorating. The COVID, the pandemic situation in particular, was reaching crisis proportions. The the government uh, at the time really had not mounted an effective response to the latest wave of the coronavirus. And uh, at one point over the summer, I think Tunisia had the highest, if I remember correctly, the highest death rate per capita at at a particular time of any country in the world. So the the pandemic was really, really hitting Tunisia very hard and the government seemingly was not on top of the situation. And it's also true that the sort of mixed parliamentary and presidential system that was set up after the Tunisian revolution uh, and sort of enshrined in the 2014 constitution was subject to or prone to sort of gridlock and paralysis at times. And there was a lot of frustration among Tunisians that the parliament in particular, the elected parliament, was not functioning properly and was sort of devolving into fights, sometimes even physical fights on the floor of the parliament among uh, deputies, instead of rising to the occasion and really Uh, working together to address the very serious sort of economic and and health crisis that was facing Tunisia at the time. All that being said, the solution to a poorly functioning or not very well functioning democracy, in my view, is never to throw out democracy and impose dictatorship. The solution is always to strengthen the democratic system that exists, not to destroy it. That's why 
I place myself on the opposite side of those who say that what Paisaia did by abrogating the constitution and basically imposing one man rule and all of the other things that he's done since July, that that response is a solution to the problems that Tunisia is facing. The solution would have been, and I regret that Tunisian political class uh, was has so far been unable to do this, but to come together and figure out ways to strengthen the system and solve the political and economic crisis that was facing the country. Let me come in there, sorry to interrupt, but let me come in there because your organization, uh, Pomed, the Project on Middle East Democracy, put a letter out uh, to the president, President Biden, on the 3rd of March that outlined your concerns. What are those concerns? Well, what is the charge sheet against Kaya Saeed? Kaya Saeed was elected by a very strong majority in the 2019 presidential elections, elected to the position of the president, uh, who under the previous political system in Tunisia, the one that existed at the time of his power grab, uh, was supposed to be much more limited in powers than what existed under the uh, under the Ben Ali dictatorship and the Bourguiba dictatorship. The charge sheet against Qaisayed is, it seems that uh, b- maybe even before he was elected to the presidency, for several years, even when he was a more obscure Tunisian uh, figure, he has had an idea of creating a different kind of political system in Tunisia that is essentially one-man rule. He is on record as being extremely opposed to uh, political parties, extremely opposed to parliaments that have strong political party representation. He is distrustful of independent institutions, uh, many of which, you know, the most, these were sort of jewels in Tunisia's post-revolution crown, an independent election commission, a anti-corruption institution. These are sort of quasi, you know, governmental institutions that operate independently, that were set up very intentionally by Tunisians after the revolution to avoid the situation under the dictatorship where the president um, basically controlled everything, you know, to the very much to the detriment of, of Tunisia. So Kaisayed has, there, you know, there are indications that for a long time, even before July 25th, he's had this vision, kind of as vague as it was, of creating a new political system in Tunisia that combines elements of one-man rule with, quote-unquote, popular democracy that is based on, quote-unquote, the people's will uh, and, and gets rid of these kind of intermediate or mediating institutions such as the parliament and other bodies. Some Tunisian analysts have likened his vision to actually what uh, Muammar Gaddafi imposed in Libya. So it's very radical. So that's kind of his vision. It is not, uh, he calls it democracy, but it is not a vision of democracy. And since he has seized power in violation of the Tunisian constitution, I might add, that's extremely important, he has uh, suspended the, car- the parliament also unconstitutionally. He has now taken over the judiciary. <laughs> He's preparing to uh, perhaps crush independent civil society. He has gone after those who have criticized him. They have been prosecuted for free speech violations and military courts. So this is a man who is intolerant of criticism, intolerant of dissent, and it also seems intolerant of 
um, a government that has different institutions in it that function uh, outside of his uh, direct control. So it is very clear at this point, say six, seven months on from his power grab, that his goal is to dismantle and destroy Tunisian democracy. There's absolutely no question that that's what he's trying to do. You mentioned the judiciary um, on 7th of March, Kai Said appointed what uh, has been called a temporary judicial council, having, as you say, dissolved the previous one. And at their investiture, he said, I'm quoting here, we are fighting together against the corruption, against those who want to bring down the state. We are in a national liberation battle. I, that's, that's quite a statement. I wonder what you make of it and, and, and of this vision that he has uh, for Tunisia, his broad vision. Well, regarding his rhetoric uh, and the statement that you that you just quoted, that is a very typical rhetoric from Qais Syed. One of the things that he's done from the beginning uh, since his uh, July 25th coup is to demonize his opponents, his perceived opponents, uh, anyone who isn't actively on board with his program, anyone who questions it, uh, demonizes them in rhetoric that is frankly, quite shocking and, and very uh, different, uh, very, very, very different than what we've seen in Tunisia over the past decade of democratic politics. It seems to me uh, not, you know, this is not the first time that we've seen Kais Syed portray things in a black and white situation and to portray those who are not with his project as actually against the state. As, as, as traitors. And this rhetoric is, is obviously extremely dangerous, extremely polarizing, um, extremely worrying. And it's also, you know, I would, I would humbly say inaccurate. If we look at the judiciary in Tunisia, for example, the judiciary, there are some, you know, credible allegations that there were some judges who were not uh, operating you know, on the up and up, that there was some corruption. But there's also many parts of the Tunisian judiciary that are not corrupt. And what Qaisaid is doing, which is what he's also done with the parliament and what he is going to do with other institutions or try to do, is he's trying to take down the entire institution based on the allegation that there are a few corrupt bad apples. And we see uh, that, that that kind of response is very dangerous because there are certainly measures if he was genuinely interested in weeding out potentially corrupt individuals and strengthening the institution of the judiciary, judiciary the independent judiciary as a whole, we'd see a very different approach. The way that he kind of in some cases exaggerates things and then portrays them as us versus them is incredibly dangerous in terms of his, and it's, and it's also unfair, I think. I would note that Tunisia has had a lot of challenges with, with corruption since, well, before the revolution and since the revolution. Kais Syed has not really done anything in any sort of you know, systematic or or clear way uh, in a clear program since July 25th to actually root out this corruption. What he's done is use the rhetoric of fighting corruption and he's gone after some individuals uh, who he has portrayed as corrupt, but it seems more that what's really motivating his crackdown against them is score, political score settling. Uh, in terms of his general project, I would say quite frankly, I think it's a disaster for Tunisia. 
Tunisians have lived through basically one man rule, lived through all of the, the political and social and economic problems that living under, in particular, the Ben Ali dictatorship brought, and also the, the cruelty, the violence, the repression. Many, many Tunisians suffered really uh, hugely under that dic- dictatorship, and the country as a whole suffered because it was uh, closed off and Tunisian kind of voices and creativity were, were, were snuffed out. I don't see Haysayed so far taking any steps to actually uh, have any kind of a coherent program to address the economic corruption and other problems that Tunisia is facing. I see him using popular discontent over those issues to allow himself or bolster himself to do a power grab to pursue a vision that really doesn't have anything directly to do with those problems. It's more his vision, his view, and it's a very sort of esoteric view, I might say, of how Tunisia should be governed. So the things that he promised to address when he did his power grab at the end of July that many Tunisians are extremely worried about, he has not addressed in my view. Well, that then brings me to my next question, which is uh, what kind of support does Kaysayed have among the population and the political class? In terms of, of his popularity now, it's really hard to say. There is public opinion polling uh, in Tunisia, but uh, there are some method- methodological uh, concerns, at least that's what I've heard from public opinion uh, polling experts uh, that uh, it's hard to know how accurate all these polls are. But nonetheless, if we take these polls, we do see his support sort of steadily diminishing over the months. Uh, so it's clear that uh, that he doesn't have the same, that the initial enthusiasm that many Tunisians, you know, had for him when he did this power grab and uh, froze the, you know, very unpopular parliament that that has really diminished. I would note, though, uh, two things. One is that the opposition in Tunisia, there, there is quite a bit of opposition to what Kaysayed is doing, especially among the political class, since, of course, <laughs> we know for one, one reason for that is that there are uh, still a lot of Tunisian Democrats. Uh, another reason is that Kaysayed has made attacking and destroying and weakening the political class, one of his top goals. And so, of course, these people are, you know, the, the first victims of, of his uh, his attempt to reimpose, or he is has reimposed one-man rule in Tunisia. So, of course, there's a lot of opposition to him uh, among the political class. He has, he has very much uh, demonized them and, and taken aim at them in particular, but they're divided. They're divided. And there's a lot of different divides and divisions among the sort of... Um, anti-Kaisayed block, but, you know, one of the important divides, unfortunately, in my view, continues to be sort of Islamist secular divide. So you have the Nahda, which is still, you know, the largest political party, obviously very, very firmly uh, opposed to Kaisayed. You have other parties that are not supporting what Kaisayed did, uh, has done, is doing, but they are reluctant for a number of reasons to be really teaming up with the Nahda. So as long as the opposition is divided, Kaysayed will be able to keep trying to do what he's doing and bringing uh, Tunisian democracy to ruin. The other thing I would mention that's interesting to look at in terms of Kaysayed's popularity or how much public support there is for his sort of 
obscure but emerging political program is that he has decided early on that uh, the 2014 constitution, this this really great democratic constitution that was produced through a lot of um, consultation and participation, he wants to uh, replace that with something else. He's never explained exactly what the problems with that constitution are, but uh, he set up this sort of online consultation in which he wants has gone directly to the Tunisian people to ask them in this sort of e-questionnaire what they would like to have instead. And it's widely seen as just a way of getting, quote unquote, popular legitimation for the plan that he already has in his mind. But the, the response among the Tunisian public to this online consultation about changing the political system has been more than anemic. Uh, one Reuters report I read uh, said that according to the the people who are actually running this this online sort of questionnaire survey for the president, that there had been about 300,000 responses out of a country with a population of 12 million. So it's really hard to say that there is a very strong or really any significant public support for his uh, his political project. Mm. Now, clearly, Joe Biden has his hands full. Um, domestically and with the whole Ukraine situation. I'm just wondering, though, does he have either the time or the inclination to go to bat for Tunisian democracy? Because, I mean, what you're describing is uh, unless there is some action, Kaisai will proceed, will effectively demolish what's left of Tunisian democracy. I think so far we've seen that no, President Biden doesn't have the time or the inclination to go to bat for Tunisian democracy. President Biden himself, uh, you know, we know at this point that that one of his uh, policy goals has been as much as possible to keep the Middle East and its problems and its news and its issues off of his desk and to have uh, the region kind of handled it at, uh, at a non-presidential level. He has a lot of other priorities. We've also seen, you know, that the administration, despite all of its grandiose rhetoric about um, having democracy and human rights at the center of its foreign policy, blah, 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 that they've actually, when push comes to shove, they've had, in the case of Tunisia, seemingly a very difficult time figuring out how to respond actually in a robust way. And I think also there's a perception that, um, you know, it just doesn't matter that much. And so why should the president really get involved in something that, um, you know, is just sort of too complicated and Tunisia is just a small country? And and I would say that that is so unfortunate. Uh, I see the situation very differently. I think that Tunisia is a place where there is a fair amount of resistance to Qais Syed's attempt to destroy Tunisian democracy. There are still a lot of Tunisians who want and support and are fighting for democracy. And if the United States cannot manage to mount a clear and effective you know, opposition to what Qais Syed is doing, then it's really hard to take them seriously that they care about democracy because the real test of prioritizing or centering democracy and human rights in U.S. foreign policy is whether the U.S. is going to do this in cases where uh, it's not a high-profile country or the beneficiaries of an anti-democratic turn are not seen to be, you know, the adversaries of the United States like Russia. So, and I think, you know, it's very, very, very short-sighted of the Biden administration not to 
mount a more effective policy to try to protect and preserve Tunisian democracy because it was a flawed democracy before January, before July 25th, but it was a democracy, the only one in the Arab world. And having that uh, crushed and destroyed while the US and Europe kind of basically stand by without very much effective protest is a victory for all those forces in the region and in the world who want to see democracy crush. So it actually really does matter, not just for Tunisia, but also in the bigger strategic picture. Uh, so I really wish that, uh, that I wish that uh, uh, if not President Biden, then other senior officials would, uh, would spend a little bit more time on Tunisia. I think it, it really, really matters uh, in the long run in terms of this bigger struggle that we're in of authoritarianism versus democracy. Indeed it does. So finally, with your POMAD hat on, what would you like to see the Biden administration do right now in regards to Tunisia? There's a few things they could do right now. Uh, one is that they could send some, some, some senior diplomats, some senior officials out there to actually talk with the Tunisian government and with other parties in Tunisia about what's going on, to express U.S. concerns, uh, to show support for those in Tunisia who are fighting for democracy and uh, to show, you know, what's important to the United States, at least. Uh, there would be some pushback against this from some parts of uh, the Tunisian body politic, for sure. But uh, I think ultimately it would be more constructive for the U.S. Uh, to have that kind of engagement. Uh, we've seen, you know, uh, Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman has been on this tour of, uh, of North Africa. Uh, on her schedule was a visit this week, was a visit to Morocco, a visit to Algeria, a visit to Egypt. Why couldn't she have stopped for a day or part of a day in Tunisia when she's right in the neighborhood. I think that would have been one place to start with a little more senior level diplomatic engagement. Of course, doesn't need to be the president, doesn't even need to be the secretary of state, but it could be a senior official. She's a very, very skilled and experienced diplomat, Wendy Sherman. I think she would have been a good person to send out there. Uh, the other thing the US could be doing is, uh, and they may already be doing this in fact, which would be good, is making it very clear to the Tunisian government that we're not going to support this IMF loan that Qaisaid may need to prevent the economy from having a fiscal meltdown, uh, that uh, we will support that if he takes some, some steps to kind of uh, return some democratic institutions and processes to Tunisia. Uh, that kind of sort of hardball conditionality is, is usually uh, controversial, but I think in a situation like this, it's important enough that the U.S. Uh, makes it very clear where it stands. And the third thing that the Biden administration could be doing is uh, just meeting and engaging uh, more with different groups in Tunisia who um, are, you know, fighting against dictatorship and authoritarianism. Certainly, there's a lot of ways that the U.S. could be engaging more creatively with just a broader array of parties and individuals and institutions in Tunisia to plant itself a little more firmly uh, on the side of democracy. So those are three things for starters that I think the Biden administration could be doing now. Well, Amy, I hope they're listening. Uh, look, th thank you very much. <laughs> no, I don't think they are, Bill, but <laughs> one can always hope. Thanks, Amy. Okay, thank you. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Amy Hawthorne, Deputy Director of Research at POMED, 
the Project on Middle East Democracy in Washington, D.C. We welcome your comments. In addition to our podcasts, which I'm pleased to say have a rapidly growing global audience and are available on several platforms, including Amazon Music, the Arab Digest daily newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts. If you'd like a free trial to the newsletter, simply go to ArabDigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.